Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast again, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell once again. This week, we're going to be talking about the NCAA recently rescinding its ban on hosting championship contests in states that allow sports betting and uh, the ramifications of all of that. Then we're going to dive into a couple of non-conference games that we already have circled on our calendar as big interest games, as well as some that we think are a little bit overrated. And then finally, we're going to dive in and uh, get a little personal once again and look at some of the most memorable players throughout our lives of following college football. So yeah, we've got a couple of exciting topics today. How are you doing this week, John? I'm doing well. Uh, Happy to be back talking with you again, just kind of keeping the keeping college football alive as we enter the you know long night of the off season now we're really really getting into it i know you wrote something uh this past sunday just about that you know kind of approaching this long what's going to be a long summer of no football so this uh this weekly endeavor allows us to kind of keep it keep it alive at least definitely yeah i love being able to you know even hit some of these topics during the off season that you wouldn't normally have time to think about when you're in the rush of of game time or even, you know, spring practices, having to follow different storylines with that. Now that we have all that in the draft behind us, I think it, it really lets us hit on a couple of these things. And one of the, you know, the first thing we were going to look at this week was the, the NCAA's recent um, revoking of its ban on hosting championship games in states that have sports betting and that have sports books. Um, what I really think this does is a couple of things. Um, you know, it, first of all, it just expands opportunity for states to get to see championship contests. And it opens up a lot of places that do have really great facilities to do so. Um, you know, eight states right now allow sports betting, um, obviously Nevada. And then you have Delaware, Mississippi, New Jersey, New Mexico, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. Um, those are a couple of big states in there that were basically effectively cut out. I mean, you're cutting out everything from from the facilities in New Jersey on the other side of New York, um, you know, the borderline there, and then you're cutting out Philadelphia, you're cutting out Pittsburgh, you're cutting out a lot of interesting places that you could have contests. And so I think it's it, it's really great in terms of expanding access there. It, it's really great in just regards of the way things are turning right now. You know, I know we've, ta- you know, we've talked about sports betting. I think it was only three weeks ago we were looking at long shots in terms of the, the national odds. And, you know, we've also looked at betting futures in terms of over-under for win totals. It's something that's really interesting. Whether or not you actually throw money on it, it's an interesting thing to follow. And it really does put a finger on the pulse of where these teams actually stand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes things even more interesting. Like, you could be watching the... And for TV networks, too, you think they would be pushing it because if you're talking about... You know, you're watching one of the, you know, Alabama plays on CBS all the time, right? So you're talking about Alabama on CBS playing like a Vanderbilt a couple years ago. And Alabama won 62 to, to zero or whatever the final score was for that game. And I mean, people are turning that game off at halftime. But if, you know, people with betting interests might not because they might be looking, hey, is Alabama going to hit the over by themselves? You know, is uh, are these prop bets going to hit? So it's able to 
with gambling, you're able to maintain interest in games that people would have long changed the channel on, right? Like looking for something else to watch in a blowout. So you would think TV networks and stuff would really be encouraging gambling. I know that was a big thing with the uh, the Alliance of American Football that's now folded. I read uh, a really good piece on that this past week that had a lot to do with how they really hope to kind of be innovative in uh, in gambling and stuff, being able to make live bets during the game via uh, an AAF app, which, yeah. you know, something like that. I think we're probably only a few years away from the NFL or college football doing stuff like that. And one of the interesting parts, too, Zach, aside from that, is Vegas yeah. to host potential college football play- or college football games, maybe even playoff games and stuff down the road as well, because they've got the new stadium uh, you know, the, they're building for the Raiders. It's going to be, you know, a state-of-the-art facility. I think particularly that could be something big for the Pac-12, for their championship game. That could be one of the areas they maybe look at hosting their uh, Pac-12 championship. Because, I mean, I know last year at the Pac-12 championship game, you looked in the stands, man, it was kind of pitiful based on the attendance for that. So if you can pull in, you know, a Vegas crowd who's really excited about a lot of people probably gambling on the game. I think that could be really good for the Pac-12. I think the Mountain West could really take advantage of that Vegas site as well for their championship games or maybe even just some neutral site contests during the season or whatever I think could be really big for that conference too because people will gamble on anything, you know. People yeah. will gamble. It don't matter what level of football it is. People are gambling on the the Alliance for American Football. People gamble on the Mountain West already. Making it more accessible is a good thing. Yeah, I, I, I really agree. It, it definitely makes this sport more popular. It's something similar to fantasy football with professional sports and the way it spreads this sport to people who don't even necessarily have a, a big rooting interest in a certain team. You know, that that have followed the sport in a more traditional way. Like, people get jazzed about the numbers and really tracking how they're doing. And that's what's really fun about a bet is you don't even, you know, your team doesn't even necessarily have to win. They just have to cover. It, it, right. it, it beca- You know, it becomes a completely different dynamic of having to track things on the the screen but what if they tracked it on the screen for you like you were saying like that would be a really interesting option that they could provide and yeah I think certain conferences it, I think the fact that the NCAA has sort of taken its hands off this completely is a good thing and I think you know individual conferences will probably open different opportunities up I think also what will be interesting you know, just kind of shifting gears a slight bit to think about that new stadium in Las Vegas as well. We see a lot of early season, you know, neutral site, non-conference games that teams often have to either travel to Texas for or New Orleans or Atlanta or, Mm -hmm. you know, Orlando. It are really the four big places that these happen. Sometimes you'll get one at a Soldier Field or a Lambeau, but you never really get many of these West Coast games. And I think opening up a facility like they're going to be in Las Vegas really does allow the Pac-12 as well and its schools to have the footing to say, hey, we have a world-class facility here that we can pack, and it's easy access from basically anywhere you want in the world, because that's what Vegas has always been about. Really, what we see there as well is we're opening this up for even more people to bet on, but it really just spreads more money around to everybody but the players. That's one thing that really struck me as well when I when I read this, 
And, you know, obviously the NCAA pushes on that and talking about we're wiping our hands of this. You can schedule games there. But we're going to put out a sternly worded statement saying we still condemn betting and and we really want to make sure everything is safe and secure for the student athlete and the integrity of the sport, yada, yada, yada. You know, I could look up the exact quote, but if you're really interested in it out there listening, you can also go look it up. It's effective. You know, it goes to that effect. And what that really tells me is that this is really going to spread ease of access to fans. It's going to make sports books more accessible. More states are going to open these things up, you know, in addition to the eight states that already have it. Um, it's New York and Arkansas, you know, already have legit, you know, laws in place that regulate sports betting, even though they don't have formal sports books. And then, right. um, you know, four other states have, you know, bills in motion to advance opening up sports betting in their states, you know, and it's, it's as diverse as Indiana and Iowa and Montana and Tennessee. I think what's interesting about it is 10% of the FBS schools, you know, the 13 out of the 130 are already in states where sports betting is allowed. Or actually, you know, it's 17 of 130. So you've got more than 10%. It's like 13, 14% of these schools are already in those states. One out of eight. Ten more schools will go in if these four states that are already looking at it pass stuff. And then you've got 14 states that are already allowing sports betting. This is a snowball rolling down the mountain. And I think the NCAA was quickly seeing, you know, if we put a ban on sports betting in any state, we're cutting off a lot of places where events could be held, including, you know, Indiana, where the national offices for the NCAA are at. They're never going to ban Indianapolis from hosting contests because it's really close to home. It makes it easy travel for all the NCAA execs to watch it that year. Right. Well, I think um, what's interesting, I mean, people are going to gamble whether it's legal to gamble or not. I mean, from the history yeah. Of, of sports people have gambled on sports and before predating all these sports people's get people gambled on mm. something you know cavemen were gambling on who was going to kill the first uh wild boar that yeah. winter or whatever i mean my god i mean it's always been that way it's always going to be that way and like you said it rises it, it brings increased interest to any sport that it's able i think the fantasy football comparison is something that's really adept for this as well like you think of um, how many people play fantasy football and it, and people who might not even watch much NFL outside of it, but they keep track of the league more because of their fantasy team. And a lot of people play fantasy football for money. There's not that many people who are playing free fantasy football leagues, even if it's a side office pool or something like that. Um, March Madness, one of the most gambled upon events every year. I mean, that's a huge gambling event. Uh, it, it just doesn't make sense to not in move forward with the time because it's progressing. And I think eventually, like I said, you're going to have apps and stuff like that where you can watch games on your phone or tablet and make live wagers and stuff that way. I think that's the way of it. And I think uh, circling back to something you said earlier about kickoff events, I think a Vegas kickoff event is going to be a huge thing in the future mm-hmm. because the main impetus for these kickoff events has always been recruiting. Nick Saban said it before. Alabama plays almost every year in a neutral site game. It brings your team 
into uh, gives you a new footprint into a new recruiting area, right? Whether that's Dallas, whether that's Atlanta, whether that's Orlando or whatever. Las Vegas, Bishop Gorman High School, and yeah. several other high schools in Las Vegas turn out a ton of Division One football, basketball talent every single year. So you know schools, even from the South or the East Coast or whatever, are going to be itching to try to get a footprint into that area so their brand gets going out there and they can pull some of those uh, the kids out there. Because a lot of kids that are coming out of Vegas are going to go to Pac-12 schools yep. or maybe venture into Big 12 territory, into Texas or something like that. But the majority of them are going to stay out there. So you know that and you know it could be advantageous especially for a Pac-12 school because maybe like you know the Chick-fil-A kickoff traditionally is an SEC versus ACC school every now and then you get a a, a Washington right from last year yeah. but traditionally it's an SEC ACC event so maybe you end up getting uh, an every year a Pac-12 versus Big 12 or Big 10 or SEC or whatever you may have it um, and I think that would be huge and it would be you know a advantage more for the West Coast schools just like last year Washington having to travel all the way to Atlanta to play Auburn. That was a massive advantage geographically for Auburn. I mean, you're talking about a three-hour bus ride. Um, if they wanted to take a bus, I'm sure they flew anyway from Auburn. You're talking about, what, a 30-hour bus ride if you were driving oh, God, a bus yeah. from, from Seattle or, you know, God knows, five-hour plane ride or whatever. It, yeah, it's so at least that. A huge, yeah, a huge advantage. I've actually made the flight from Atlanta to Seattle, and it's about five hours, and it felt like about 23. So. Yeah. Um, I think that's huge for – I think the Pac-12 might be the most benefited from this. But, yeah, like you said, with Indiana having it legalized, they're not going to rip the Big Ten championship game out of Indianapolis. Like this was a change that had to be made for this to go forward. And, of course, there's the student-athlete stuff that you talked about. There's never – we're still too far away from them getting the slice of the pie, and we've talked about that. I think pretty much every podcast in some form or another, uh, the NCAA has done something to make us bring that up. So I think everyone out there knows how we feel about it. I know a lot of people yeah. still disagree with the compensation. I think we're both pretty firmly on record being in favor. Well, yeah, in some way. Like, really, this just seems like another way that the money is being spread around. And, like, obviously the house is going to get its cut. That's the beauty of a sports book is the house is going to get its cut. And, uh, you know, fans that win, they're going to get their cut. Somebody, you know, transactions will happen there. You might even see, <clears throat> you know, certain conferences making deals. Like, really, that's what this opens up is the opportunity for, you know, linking up both with, uh, sports books, and what I think would be interesting also is you see this sometimes with like state lotteries, both in the U.S. and abroad, especially abroad with soccer. You see a lot of linking up with lottery, um, yeah, and really just making picks and and all of that. And I think that could be a really lucrative future for conferences. That if it ultimately gets to the point of spreading around money, that's going to be a huge revenue generator for them. One other thing right. I was thinking of just as we were talking here that really struck me just now is because betting and because gambling in general, whether it's fantasy or, you know, over-unders, tracking total points, whatever gets your, you, you going, um, 
or even individual stats, you know, like there are ways that that sports betting could really expand based around this, seeing a lot more prop bets becoming mainstream. Um, But really what that does is it even opens up the door for more more college sports to become revenue sports. Like I know we we're, we're we're mainly talking about college football here. But imagine what the College World Series might look like for both, you know, men's baseball and women's softball if, you know, this really takes off and you could put a championship, you know, like the final four of that World Series, you know, playoff to, you know, one of these great places to play that's, um, you know, in a state that has sports betting. And it just opens the door for more people to get interested in it that way. Um, you could see it with all of these different sports, really. It's an opportunity to drum up interest in a different way and possibly generate new revenue streams for these programs that, frankly, that's always been the big argument, as we've said, against paying players, is you've got to make sure all these other sports are taken care of. We've, right. ta- we've talked about the hypocrisy of that in some ways in terms of how pay keeps going up and up and up for the main, you know, the head honchos at the, you know, at the top of each program. But even then, like, this is a way for those programs to be self-sustaining and really, you know, undercut that argument as well. Like, this is a way for them to say, hey, we take care of ourselves. Now, you need to go take care of the people you're really generating a bunch of currency off of. Right. You know, um, what I was thinking of too, gambling has become so, such like a fundamental part of college football. Like if you open up and your ESPN app or something like that on your phone during the season and you look at the schedule, mm-hmm. you're going to see two teams playing each other. And right next, there's going to be a number, a minus something, right? Or yep. plus whatever. And it's going to be the spread. The point spread is always right there, front and center. On any any time you're looking at the box score of a game or anything beforehand, you're going to see uh, a point spread right there and an over under and all that, and that's yeah. a fundamental part of it. That's how you know. That's how teams. Um, that's how you know who's favored. You know what I mean? Who's the underdog in each event? And sometimes it's a surprise because you think sometimes the AP number twenty three is playing an unranked team, and that unranked team is favored in the game. Yeah. And that's a surprise to you know your normal everyday college football fan who doesn't follow a sport as closely just watches every now and then they see that and they're like, well, that's confusing. Why would they be the favorite? But that's, you know, how we get upsets. That's how we know what constitutes an upset. Like when years ago, what was it? Uh, Stanford in, I think Jim Harbaugh's first year beat USC as like a 41 point underdog. Yeah. And if it wasn't for betting, you don't, you know, that's an upset because it's a, a lowly Stanford team at the time versus you know, a power team like USC, but you don't know how big of an upset was. I'd want to say one of the biggest upsets in college football history from a, from a point spread perspective. So, I mean, it's such a fundamental part of the game and really has increased over the last decade, I would say, at least in my own personal consciousness. So I fighting it makes no sense. You got to just let it happen. I think it's only going to increase um, fan support and fan participation in these events Uh, particularly when you've got the battle that's happening across college football with attendance. Like there's a massive battle going on with attendance in college football. And it's because of the fact that everybody's got, you know, high def big screen TVs at home. They can watch the game from the comforts of their couch. And it's, you know, 
a good experience where they don't have to get, you know, around 60 to 100,000 people and fight the hot sun or the frigid cold, depending on what season it is. So there's some real battles there, particularly for some of the smaller schools that are really combating that. And I think gambling and being okay with that and maybe these conferences like you said striking deals with sports books and stuff and getting a cut of the pie could really be important for some of these institutions going forward yeah well and that's the other part of it is that really ensures the like if the ncaa is worried about the integrity of the competitions themselves having conferences take the lead on cutting those deals and then becoming the enforcement arm of whether or not those games are actually legitimate. Like, because once you you're on the board and you're actually like regulating and legitimizing it and sanctioning it through your organization, you know, it, it really puts you on the hook to make sure that those games are played in integrity. And so for all the like pro clutching that the NCAA wants to do about that in terms of the statements that they issue around it, despite saying this is okay now, it, it was always just a matter of time. And yes, like I think the attendance point is a really good point to bring up because if there are alternate revenue streams to pop up, you know, going and sitting in the bleachers is still always going to be fun for certain people. And I think, like you said, it's the small schools more than anything that are having the harder trouble. You're never going to have a hard time getting people to Tuscaloosa or Norman right. or State College or any of these other, you know, massive cathedrals of football. The places that have 100,000 seats are always going to pack those 100,000 seats because there's a reason they built it up to 100,000 seats. Right. Um, but, you know, it's those stadiums that hold 30,000, 35,000 and only put 7,000 people in the seats on a given week and, you know, bulk it up to 10 or 11 by dint of, you know, donations and corporate sales and whatnot. But right. even then, you know, it's it, it is a struggle. And I think whatever revenue streams are possible there are a good thing. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure there's going to be more time for us to talk about uh, attendance, but I think even at some of the bigger schools, you're seeing some of the effects from it, especially like I can say from personal experience at Alabama, you don't have the issues for the bigger games, but when they're playing the Colorado States or the Mercers from the FCS, those kind of schools, you are seeing that you are seeing, you know, 20,000 empty seats and, you know, the university doesn't care from a, financial standpoint because almost all those seats were sold yep. it's just students not showing up uh to the games or you know red elephant club tide pride members stuff like that not actually showing up and claiming their seats for that game ticket um people out front not being able to pawn off their tickets or anything like yeah. that but it look it, you know it's not a great look on tv for you to see empty seats at that kind of event and alabama's actually renovating uh uh here shortly on several of their stadiums and downsizing for basketball. And I believe downsizing a little bit from football. I believe it holds 101,821 currently. I think it's going to be just shy of a hundred thousand when they take out a few seats. Uh, but I mean, it's still a ton, you know, you're yeah. still talking about a sanctuary for football, right? Like just a ton of seats. So I know that's a topic we'll probably get into and dive into a lot uh, further, especially if it starts 
or it continues the trend that we've seen in the last few years of that actually being a genuine concern for some conferences and teams. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch as the season begins coming up in August and moving through the fall. Um, for now, was there anything else that you were thinking in terms of gambling and everything that we saw in terms of that? Only that I'm depressed that we'll probably be the 50th state out of 50 here in Alabama to legalize it. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, everybody. And then we're going to be back soon to talk about some of the non-conference games coming up next season. Stay tuned. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're back to talk about uh, the non-conference schedule in college football next uh, next season. Uh, and Zach and I, during the break, we're just having a quick conversation about how kind of week one a little bit this year is kind of a dud, right, Zach? Yeah, it, it's one of those schedules where, you know, I was looking at a couple of games on there. Obviously, for me, Auburn and Oregon playing at, at Jerry World is a, that's a big game. <clears throat> and I think for both teams, it's going to be a game that really serves as a litmus test for where they can actually go this season. Um, but at the same time, you know, for as, ex, you know, as great as it was that Florida and Miami are playing again, I'm not so sure that game's going to be even that exciting. And that's like the second most exciting game I saw on the schedule that, you know, I think it's one that's going to be hyped up a lot because, you know, it has the storyline of that in-state rivalry that's kind of been dormant. But in terms of the actual, like, competitive value... I'm not necessarily sold on Miami this year a lot. And, you know, Florida looks like they're going to be a good team. And it, it, it could very well just end up being a blowout there in Orlando. Yeah, that'll get hyped more, too, because they moved it up the week to August 24th, right? So it'll pretty it'll be the marquee game of that uh, weekend. I think there's a few other games that are yeah. being played that weekend, too, but real smaller ones that no one's really going to pay that much attention to. I'm on the other side of that. So it's like, I, I'm pretty excited about Florida-Miami for no other reason than getting to see Florida and Miami play again. You know, it's been... They haven't played that many times recently. Um, I think the last time they played was 2013, 2014, something like that. So it's been five or six years since they've kind of met on the gridiron. That used to be, when I was a kid, one of my favorite games to watch every season was when Miami and Florida would go. And this doesn't have the same allure because Miami isn't the Miami they were then. Florida's not even quite what they were then either back in the, you know, Steve Spurrier days. But I think Florida's got a chance of being really good. If Miami can figure out their quarterback situation this year, they've got a chance to really bounce back, I think, because they should be really good defensively still. As all the talk about Miami falling off last year, they still had a top five total defense in the country. Uh, and, you know, with Manny Diaz being back as, as the head coach now, that side of the ball is probably still going to be really good. It's all going to come down to whether – whether Nikosi Perry can take a big step as a sophomore or if Jaron Williams can step up and take the job or if Tate Martell yeah. um, can learn the playbook and get everything down in enough time to go. I think that's still a wide open race. But yeah, uh, opening weekend, I mean, you usually have what's Labor Day, Labor Day weekend typically. So yeah. usually Monday you get a really good game, but this year it's Notre Dame and Louisville, which really doesn't do anything for me this year based on the fact I mean I'm excited to see what Scott Satterfield can do at Louisville um, in of his course. first season but are we really expecting them to take much of a jump forward after going what two and ten last year I, I don't really see it and that's one of that's going to be you know a prime time game uh, then and then Sunday the Sunday night game uh, before that you got Houston and Oklahoma which you know that could be intriguing based on the fact that there might be 120 points scored or something like that in that game, kind of depending on if Oklahoma's defense has 
kind of taking the step with Alex Grinch now coordinating. And it'll be interesting to see Jalen Hurts' first game at Oklahoma and um, Dana Holgerson's first game as the Houston coach and all that. But there was kind of slim pickings, I thought, when I was kind of, we you kind of discussed with me the topic of trying to find the best non-conference games. And usually those are almost exclusively on the first weekend. You're going to find the best ones, yeah. you know, the much ballyhooed and hyped games. But there's just not really that many. Like you said, Auburn and Oregon, I think that's the marquee game of the opening weekend. Yeah. Uh, you got two teams who could legitimately be players in the national race. I think that game's more important <laughs> to Auburn than it is Oregon because I yeah. don't think it kills Oregon if they lose that game. I think... Uh, they're still going to be one of the top teams in the Pac-12 no matter what. Just like Washington last year, they lost to Auburn to open the season, still ended up in the Rose Bowl, right? Yeah. For Auburn, I think a loss there could really send them spiraling because it would kind of be the, well, maybe we're not going to be that good again this year, and that could really put some negativity in the air there and really send them down, particularly with either a redshirt freshman or a true freshman running things at quarterback for Auburn next year. And, I mean, an absolutely brutal schedule. I wrote about that. Uh, this past week on the website um, about Auburn's schedule. They have a really weird schedule. I know this is getting off topic, but their last road game is like October 26th, and they're, they literally don't play a road game in November, but they also don't play a home game in October. That's so I don't really know what weird. the SEC was doing with that schedule, but it's kind of garbage. That's <laughs> that really to, weird. Yeah, I thought it was really <laughs> weird. Um, but anyway, getting off of just opening weekend, Zach, what are a couple other games that really stood out to you on the non-conference schedule for next year? You know, I, I the one more still that kind of pops out from opening weekend and is one that I'm glad I remembered to mention that I think is really kind of quietly a really great game is Northwestern Stanford playing out in California. Yeah. I think both of those teams do have a legitimate shot of playing for their respective conference championship games as mm-hmm. much as Oregon and the Washington schools are talked up in the Pac-12 North. Stanford is still right there with KJ Costello and, you know, David Shaw is always going to have a great fundamentally sound team out on the field. And so that's going to be great. And then going up against Pat Fitzgerald and Northwestern, again, another really fundamental team and You know, once you put Hunter Johnson there at quarterback, as we've talked about before, seeing him in his opening game for the Wildcats is really going to be an intriguing thing to follow. And I think especially going up against Stanford, a Stanford level defense is also going to be a really great thing to see. So I think that's one of the other ones that that actually does stick out to me from week one. But yeah, beyond that, it's really kind of slim. Um, you know, moving on to week two, I think one of the games that are taking place, you know, there's two big games ostensibly taking place in Texas in week two. Um, you know, LSU going to Austin and then uh, Clemson going to College Station. And I think that LSU-Texas game is going to be really great. I think the Clemson-Texas A&M game, you know, as as good as as the Aggies might be this year. We talked about it in terms of just brutal schedules and how things line up um, earlier in the, you know, in one of our podcasts uh, earlier back. And I, I, I really think Clemson is just kind of going to roll over in that game. They're just going to roll over the Aggies in that game. And so, yeah, I think out of those two, LSU-Texas is definitely the more interesting of the duo to me 
Yeah, uh, you got with, uh, you know, A&M came pretty close to upsetting Clemson last year, but that was in College Station, obviously, and that was before Trevor Lawrence had really taken over as a starter. Kelly Bryant still played uh, the vast majority of that game. They split time, but I think Bryant started and got uh, the late snaps and everything like that. So, you know, I that'll be hyped because of last season, because of the fact that A&M came very close to pulling the big upset, but this whole different environment when you got to go across the country and play at Clemson against, against uh, Trevor Lawrence. Now who's 100% the unquestioned starter there. He's got no competition anymore. He's arguably the best quarterback in the entire country um, there. So maybe even one of the, one of the two Heisman front runners, especially. So I don't know whether that'll be a great game or not. It'll be interesting because there's not a ton of, challenges Clemson faces on their schedule next year if you really look at it that's one of the best overall teams that they're going to play maybe the best overall team probably absolutely the best overall team they'll play all season long um, until you get probably into the playoff because I don't think there's anybody from the other division in the ACC who's going to really challenge them unless unless of course Miami really steps forward or Virginia Tech's able to pick up the pieces I don't know um but yeah, I definitely LSU Texas. That was probably number one on my list of most intriguing games, specifically because it's one of the on-campus games too. Yeah. It's not a neutral site game. It's LSU going to Austin, playing in Daryl K. Royal Stadium um, against Texas, two of the biggest brands in college football going head to head against one another. Um, and you know they don't play that often. I don't have the um, history on me at the moment i'm not sure the last time they played but it's been quite a while i would assume uh because i haven't seen an lsu texas game at least especially in the regular season uh before so i think that's really intriguing especially you know is texas back i think that'll be the litmus test for texas too are they officially back after winning the sugar bowl last year are they going to be competitive on a national stage or maybe did they peak did they jump ahead a little too early last year are they going to you know, take a little bit of a step back this year. It's certainly possible. Uh, and I think we'll find out a lot about them. I think we'll find out a lot about LSU too, because that's a huge road game with Joe Burrow still at quarterback. There's a ton of talent at LSU. They've got some of the most returning production in the country. I think they're a legitimate national championship contender next year. And how big of a game could that be for LSU's playoff resume, Zach? Oh, if, huge. If they can pull that win, even if Texas is only eight or nine win Texas, if they're not, you're not talking about Big 12 champion Texas, just that it's Texas. And yeah. Even eight or nine win Texas is probably going to be ranked in the top 20, right? So, in a true road even, game, too, I think. Absolutely. Part of absolutely. That, they deserve. They deserve more credit for winning a true road game than you know an Auburn would deserve for maybe winning against Oregon in a neutral site because yep. it's tougher to go to someone else's stadium and pull off that win. So you're talking about an LSU team too, Zach, if they pull off that win early, they could still probably to me afford a loss at Alabama, which will be a difficult place for them to get a win. They haven't beaten Alabama the last eight times they've played and, you know, going on the road, especially will be tough. You're talking about an LSU team that finishes second in the West at 11 and one, but with a win over Texas, how many teams are going to have a better one loss resume at the end of the day? I think you're still talking about the potential for, you know, a two SEC team, college football playoff next year if LSU can go there and win. And obviously, they have some other stumbling blocks on the schedule. They still got to play Florida, Texas A&M, Auburn, a bunch of really quality teams. So I'm getting way ahead of myself. But that's one of the things I thought about, I've been thinking about uh, recently with uh, as it involves that game. Certainly. Um, and just to get to the historical perspective on that, the last two times these teams both played were in the Cotton Bowl. 
uh, in on New Year's Day 1963 and New Year's Day 2003. Wow. Um, the last time that LSU played in Austin, 1954, and they lost. Wow. They lost 20 to six. Wow. Okay. So definitely been a long time. <laughs> yeah, 65 years since the last time these two teams played in the regular season. Wow. So yeah, I I think that just from that historical perspective and the fact that both teams are likely to be at least contenders for double digit wins in the regular season, um, just makes it a really intriguing game. Definitely. Um, were there any others in week two that stood out to you as ones that were either going to be hyped up or ones that are actually living up to the bill? I got to be honest, when I was kind of making my list, I didn't specifically look at weeks, like keeping track with when the games were played. Got so it. I'm not I'm not 100% sure on that. I just kind of made some notes on some games that kind of stuck out throughout the schedule. I should have made a note of the week, but I did not. Ah, no worries. Well, are there any other games in general that stick out for you? Yeah, certainly. Uh, Notre Dame uh, coming to Georgia, coming to Athens this year. Uh, I believe that game is September 21st, September 28th. I'm not sure. It's a, yeah, Sometime. it's a week four game. So, yeah, yeah I think it's so, the 20, 21st, 23rd, whatever that weekend is. Yeah. So Notre Dame coming to Athens looking to pay back the 2017 game played at South Bend. South Bend that Georgia, you know, won was really big for Georgia's playoff resume that season, um, winning that game in South Bend against Notre Dame. So can Notre Dame uh, kind of silence the critics from last season's college football playoff that kind of strummed up again, just like it happened when they got blown out against Alabama in 2012 in the national title game? You know, can they kind of silence the critics come in? And if, if Notre Dame goes undefeated, and there was a lot of talk last year that Notre Dame shouldn't be allowed in the playoff again after they got embarrassed on the national stage again that's stupid if they go undefeated again with this schedule specifically going to Sanford Stadium in Athens and pulling out a win over Georgia that's an easy playoff team it's not even a discussion yeah uh, to me uh, I don't know that they can win at Georgia that's going to be a hell of a tough environment for them to go get a victory um, it'd be really interesting to see if Brian Kelly can get his guys ready you know with Ian Book again they've got a good quarterback still there so that's one of the more intriguing games too and you're talking about an on-campus side again uh getting to see Notre Dame play at Georgia it's another one of those teams that another one of those two teams that don't really play that often so that's kind of a really cool thing and how exciting I, away from just this particular game how exciting is it for these kids too to get to play in these environments right like you know the two years ago for Georgia players getting to play a game at Notre Dame. We talked about this a few weeks ago yeah. on the podcast, some of our favorite historic stadiums. And we both mentioned uh, Notre Dame, right? We both yeah. mentioned South Bend, Indiana um, for a historic site. So it's really cool. I, I really like the home and homes. I think we're getting more to that too. Uh, a lot more of that coming up. You'll see it'll be 10 years from now because you'll see people schedule that 10 years in the future. So it'll be a while for some of them, but Really, really cool, really once-in-a-lifetime experience for some of these kids. So that's one of the games that really stuck out to me because you got two potential top-five teams going at it in Georgia. Certainly. Um, yeah, um, I, I, I think the historical nature of that is always really fun in terms of getting to go to these different sites and getting to travel across the country. Um one thing, you know, that brings up one for me. So, you know, obviously I write about the group of five a, a bit. And uh, 
the, uh, you know, one thing I've seen in a lot of preseason top 25 projections or, you know, these post-spring projections as, you know, and, you know, as I was looking at myself as I wrote mine, is that Army is getting a lot of love this year heading into the season. And I think their really big test is going to be getting to go to Ann Arbor and play Michigan this year. Getting to see that in the second week of the year. Like, how big is that for the the Black Knights from West Point to be going to to the big house and and playing in front of, you know, six-figure crowd? Can I can I just can I just pray right now that Army pulls out that win? I don't know if anything would make me happier next season in college football if Army went to the big house oh, and knocked man. off Jim Harbaugh in Michigan. How great would that be? Not to not to alienate the Michigan fans on the podcast, but God, that would be wonderful. No, it, it, it just from a yeah a historic standpoint. From a I mean, it's not. It certainly wouldn't be something like uh, an Appalachian state, you know? right? But it would Hell, Army went to Norman last year and took Oklahoma to overtime. So I don't know how big of an upset it would be if they went to Michigan and were and pushed them to the limits or even came out with a win because they were a play away from beating Oklahoma last year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Army's a really good team and they were last year a really good team and they are again this year. You know, they're about to receive the commander in chief trophy. And, um, you know, that they won last season against the other two service academies. And they were a double-digit win team last year. Like, they are a legitimately strong team. And I I just definitely had that one circled as to, in terms of one that I'm going to be having to write about when it comes to, to writing about the group of five next season. What's interesting, too, there, Zach, uh, to me, um, when you've got – a team like Army, too, and what really makes it difficult for a team like Michigan is Army runs an option, right? Yeah. So they're running the wishbone or whatever uh, derivation of the option that you want to call it. And that's difficult for teams like Michigan who don't face that during the season. That's why Oklahoma struggled so much, because Army had the ball for like 45 of the 60 minutes of that game because Kyler Murray's taking the ball and going straight downfield, and Oklahoma's offense is predicated on scoring as quickly as possible Army's offense is scoring as slowly as possible. Like they want to drag out 20 to 22 play drives or something like that and punch in touchdowns that take most of a quarter to go. And with Michigan, they don't play that kind of fast. It took Oklahoma overtime to get 28 points on the board, right? So you're talking about a Michigan team who also kind of likes to slow the game down, run the ball. That's kind of hardball style. There might only be like four or five possessions in that entire game. So the margin for error shrinks. That's the thing with these option-based teams is your margin for error against them, the window really, really closes because you don't have that many chances. If you turn it over one time, it can be absolutely devastating. You know, I mean, you saw it last year. Alabama played um, against the Citadel, an FCS opponent last season. That game was tied at halftime, specifically because Alabama didn't know how to combat the option because they practiced it for a week. But, I mean, a week's worth of practice isn't enough to go against a triple option team. And that's against a team like the Citadel. It doesn't have the level of talent a team like Army has. It doesn't have the same level of coaching a team like Army has. That's a really interesting game. Uh, we'll get we'll, – I'm sure we'll break that down a lot going into week two when we record our uh, preview podcast for that week uh, several months from now. 
that could be I mean that might be an upset that I that you could really point to early on in the college football season that would really really change the landscape of the season how much pressure is on Jim Harbaugh is he immediately on the hot seat if he drops a week two game Ooh. at home against Army it's a great question and I think he very well might be um and just to tease it a bit we're going to be talking about coaches on the hot seat next week so I think it's uh a, a really apropos point there that Harbaugh would be beyond lit up if he loses that game against Army. And uh, so, yeah, it definitely one I have to be watching. Oh, yeah. One other one that hit me from the group of five comes in week three, a uh, week later, and it's Stanford uh, playing at UCF in Orlando. Yep. Uh, that game is is one that... Obviously, with UCF, uh, the big knock against them the past couple of years as they've gone undefeated in the regular season is that they, they ain't played nobody. Right. <laughs> and uh, Stanford is definitely going to be a somebody this season. Absolutely. And, you know, the fact that they played them as well as um, a div- another a, a division champion pit. I feel really right. funny saying that. Sorry, I had to stammer <laughs> that a bit. But seven and seven division champ pit. Um, right. They and you know, no knock on them. The Panthers could be you know a much improved team this year, even if they don't win or they don't make right. it back to the ACC championship game. They're still going to be a good team. I could see them being a seven or eight win team in one of those losses coming against UCF. So. Sure. I, I think this game especially, like, they'll be expected to beat Pitt, UCF will. Mm. This game is one where it, it, it's kind of a, a, a 50-50 coin toss here. and Especially being played in Orlando, absolutely. Yeah, and so that's going to be a really interesting one for me. Like, a, a Power 5 team actually traveling to the Group of 5 school and playing that game. Yeah, and that's another contrasting style game too, right? Because Central Florida runs the up-tempo, let's score, let's score, let's score, let's move. Stanford wants to slow the pace down, put as many linemen on the field as is legally as they are legally allowed to do, and yep. then pound the football, right? So another kind of contrasting style game. Another game where that could be a huge resume builder if Stanford's able to go to UCF. That's not your typical win over a group of five team. No. Like that's a team that even the most ardent naysayers against group of five programs like UCF has to have some respect for based on the fact that they won 25 straight games uh, before losing a close, you know, Fiesta Bowl against LSU last year uh, without Mackenzie Milton. And they aren't going to have Mackenzie Milton this year, almost certainly. Uh, But they got a couple interesting quarterbacks, right? Daryl Mack and then uh, Brandon Wimbush. It'll be interesting to see who comes out on top of that quarterback battle. A lot of people thought it was a foregone conclusion that Wimbush would win it, but Mack's been – looking really good in the spring um, and really played well down the stretch last season, uh, specifically playing well in the, uh, uh, the AAC championship game against Memphis yeah. kind of leading UCF back from what looked like the brink of defeat in that game because they fell behind early and he really played well to dig them out of a hole. So that's a really interesting game because it's twofold. You know, if UCF wins, they get the respect for having beaten a legitimate power five team, a power five team who could still go on and win their conference, by the way, yeah. I mean, just because, Stanford maybe loses at UCF, doesn't any do anything to take them out of the, the Pac-12 race. No. Nope. So 
you've got that. And then if Stanford wins, that's a huge resume and a huge confidence booster for them kind of entering conference play after that. So that's definitely one of them. Another one of the uh, group of five teams uh, that I saw, and again, I'm not sure which week this is happening, and it's intriguing to me just because it's a coaching battle. You got Washington State against Houston this year. Yeah. I believe Washington State at Houston. So Mike Leach versus Dana Holgerson. So master versus protege um, going on in that game. So that'll be really interesting. Another early season test. Um for Holgerson's Houston team after opening up with Oklahoma and another an early test for Washington state. They don't typically play that many tough opponents out of conference. And that's been a knock on Leach's teams in recent years. They're not all that battle tested heading into conference play, but that'll be a really good test. That'll be uh, one of those, you know, set your uh, point total super high games, right? Cause you've got uh, Washington State, who's going to throw it all over the place against? I'm really intrigued to see what Dana Holgerson can do with De'Aaron King next year. Yeah, um, you got to think Houston's probably going to struggle defensively. I don't know if they're going to be very good on that side of the ball, but they're going to score some freaking points. Oh yeah, that's this, for sure. This is you a pair of quarterback like that with a coach like that. They're going to score. This is a game that could have 150 combined points on the board. It feels like, like it really right. feels like this is a game that could end like 81, 80. <laughs> Right. It's absurd, but yeah, I mean, between between Leach and Holgerson, there's going to be a lot of offense, and uh, you know, this is a game that's interesting as well, because while it's being played in Houston, it is being played at NRG Stadium, you know, home of the yeah. Texans, rather than on at, at Tadeku Stadium for Houston themselves. So I think that's also an interesting way that group of five teams are able to manage these sorts of, of scheduling these contests. Yeah. Are there any? Absolutely. Cause you get the bigger stadium, get more people in the, in the stands. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Um, And then were there any other games that really stand out to you one way or another in the, you know, this, you know, on the schedule still? Uh, None positively. There's a couple of games that are kind of duds. Um, like Alabama Duke being the Chick-fil-A kickoff is pretty disappointing to open yeah. the season. Usually, usually the Chick-fil-A kickoff is a lot more intriguing. Uh, and really it's a lot of people want to blame Alabama for scheduling this game, but Alabama didn't schedule Duke specifically. Alabama agreed. I don't know if a lot of people know how these kickoff classics work. Alabama agreed to play in the 2019 Chick-fil-A kickoff bereft of an opponent. They had no idea who they were going to play. They knew they'd play an ACC school. It's then the onus is on the Chick-fil-A brass, right, to schedule to get a quality opponent in there. It's just not that many teams in the ACC wants to play Alabama at this point because, you know, Alabama's now 8-0 or something like that in these kickoff games, not necessarily Chick-fil-A every year, but in these kickoff games. And most of them, Zach, to be honest, have been routes. They bludgeoned USC and Dallas a few years back. They've beaten Clemson in 2008 to kind of kick off the Alabama dynasty. They routed Clemson in the Chick-fil-A kickoff. They beat Virginia Tech a couple times, uh, routed Louisville last year at the Camping World kickoff. So, I mean, there's not a lot of ACC teams. Clemson's not going to jump into that game. They know they'll probably see Alabama at the end of the season anyway. It's not really advantageous for them. Virginia Tech's done it twice. They don't want any part of that anymore. Yeah. Uh, Alabama Miami play a couple years from now, I believe in 2021 uh, in this Chick-fil-A kickoff. So there just wasn't that many teams. And, you know, to be fair, Duke's not a bad team. Like you hear no. Duke and you think 
oh, well, that's a crap opponent. They were miles better than Louisville was last year that yeah. Alabama faced, right? You're talking about a Duke team coming off eight wins last year. I think they've made bowl games six out of the last seven years. David Cutcliffe's one of the most respected coaches in the country. That doesn't mean they have any shot in this game because no. they don't. Alabama's going to win by quite a few points, and it's it just sucks that the Chick-fil-A kickoff people weren't able to get a more interesting game. And I think it's going to suffer ratings-wise. I think it's going to suffer tickets-wise. Uh, selfishly, I'm kind of excited about it because it's the cheapest uh, ticket I've ever seen for a game in Atlanta, and I've never gone to the new stadium, the Mercedes-Benz yes. Stadium in Atlanta. So I'm trying to find a way to get to that game, and it's the cheapest one I've seen yet. So that's exciting. Well, there you go. So at least you got that going for you. Silver linings. Well, I think this is a great place to sort of cap this up before we head into the final segment. So we're going to take a quick break, everybody. Welcome back for our final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. For this final segment, John and I are going to be talking about some of the memorable players that we remember from our childhood and from, you know, just our, all across our college football watching lifetimes. You know, those players both at schools that we love and follow ourselves as well as, you know, just general players that are kind of seared in the memory. So, um... Yeah, with that note, I, I'm just going to throw it right to you, John. Um, who sticks out for you, especially from, like, early childhood? Well, I'm going to extend out and catch that pass, just like Freddie Millens would catch um, passes for me when I was a kid <laughs> at Alabama. My childhood is all Alabama, guys. I'll be honest with you, my early childhood, my formative memories all revolve around Alabama football. And one of my very first like heroes of the sport was Freddie Mellons. I don't even know if a lot of people remember him. Uh, he didn't go on to a big pro career, but he was a wide receiver for Alabama uh, in the late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, you know, on a couple good teams on a couple of really bad teams. <laughs> uh, but he was, he was outstanding. He was the kind of like the spiritual successor to, if you remember David Palmer at Alabama oh, yeah. in the early nineties, uh, he was the type of guy uh, who could take wildcat snaps back before the wildcat was even a thing anybody really talked about. I remember Freddie Millens just destroying Florida in the 1999 SEC championship game, taking direct snaps out of the wildcat. I think he ran like a 70 something yard touchdown. Alabama rolled in that game uh, from that team, him and Sean Alexander. Everybody remembers Sean Alexander though, from his time in the pros, he's an NFL MVP. Uh, but before that he was, the bulldozer and workhorse back at Alabama putting everyone's hopes and dreams on the 1999 uh, season on him. I mean, he won a freaking SEC championship for Mike DeBose of all people. So, you know, he's a special talent. They can yeah. ride him to, a, to an SEC title. Um, uh, and it's keeping with Alabama, uh, probably my all time favorite Alabama player will always be Julio Jones. At this point, he was the guy that kind of launched the, the dynasty at Alabama, like Alabama's recruiting dominance really started with getting Julio Jones from Foley, Alabama, who was a five-star recruit, was like the number two or number three player in the country, could have gone anywhere he wanted. And for the last decade, players like him, especially at skill positions, were leaving the state. They were going to the Oklahomas or the Texases or the USC's or even Florida or whoever, getting out of the state. So getting him was huge. There's a really fascinating story about his recruitment process, how Nick Saban kind of kind of rolled the dice. Zach, I don't know if you've heard the story before, uh, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, 
where Nick told Julio Jones in a recruiting one-on-one meeting that, you know, he can come if he wants to, but we're going to win with or without you. So kind of a ballsy statement to make for, you know, you typically look at wide receivers as the diva position of football, right? So you're looking at guys who typically need you to feed their ego and you're telling him, well, if you don't come, we're going to win anyway. Like that's a huge gamble, but I think he knew Julio's personality and that kind of speaks to Saban's ability as a recruiter because he got a feel for who Julio was uh, as a person. He's not that diva wide receiver uh, that we see all the time. The Antonio Browns of the world, like Julio's always been the guy who just puts his head down, does his work and moves on. Right. So he was huge. Um, and I skipped one. I got to run back to Tyrone Prothrow, mm-hmm. um, specifically because he grew up like 20 minutes down the street from where I lived. So I actually got to see Tyrone Prothrow play high school football at Heflin. Uh, my brother played at Welburn and they played against each other one time. And I've never seen a more, uh, unathletic person try to tackle Tyrone Proto <laughs> than when my brother tried to do it. <laughs> he, he, he does like to tell the story how they would never, you're never supposed to kick off to Prothrow in high school because, I mean, he was just that much better than everybody else on the field. They kicked it to him anyway. My brother's on kick coverage. He thinks he's got this angle on him about to take him out. He said Prothrow made one move he had never seen before, and next thing he knows, he's like tapping him on the shoulder as Prothrow's running down the sideline for like a 90-yard touchdown. So it was really cool to get to see him, who I thought was, you know, an unbelievable player in high school, but you see those unbelievable players in high school all the time that don't really translate, see him kind of translate into college and be that, you know, home run hitter for an Alabama offense, especially in the mid two thousands that they didn't really have otherwise. Uh, And it really sucks how his career ended, you know, obviously with the broken leg against Florida in 2005. Uh, Before that he was electric and he was a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. That was a really ugly injury for sure. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, I figured you'd be going with Alabama guys to start, but I think that's a really good mix of different players across the board, you know, like, and it's always fun to just think of those formative players that still stick in the mind from way back when. And yeah. for me, obviously, growing up, uh, it was mostly Wyoming and Wisconsin. And so um, it, it's interesting, as I was thinking about it a bit, it was Wisconsin running backs and Wyoming receivers that stuck in my mind. Um, So, you know, the Bolitnikoff winning tandem of Ryan Yarborough and Marcus Harris for the Cowboys were both just, that was when I was first really getting into football and especially really getting into football in the state where I grew up. And um, both of those guys, having them on the team playing for um, Joe Tiller was just incredible playing in a Joe Tiller offense. Those guys were electric and, you know, Josh Walworth throwing, um, throwing the ball, especially to Harris was just one of those things that I I can still, you know, see some of those passes in my head right now. And then obviously, you know, the two Rose bowl running backs through for in the nineties for Wisconsin, Brent Moss on those early nineties teams and then Ron Dane for the late 90s teams. Both of those guys, I mean, those guys really set the tone for what we think of as Wisconsin football in terms of, you know, just really beefy offensive lines and just right. stellar backs who know exactly how to cut through the holes those those road graders make. 
And right. Set the table for the Monty Balls and the Jonathan Taylors of today, right? It, exactly. And so, yeah, like Brent Moss carving up a really good UCLA team for nearly 200 yards in the Rose Bowl. It, like that game, you know, I've talked about that Rose Bowl game a, get, a bit, but I was thinking about it more and just the way Moss ran in that game was absolutely phenomenal. And then, you know, Dane's entire career, obviously, you know, culminating in that Heisman season at a time when Heisman's really, I, I think the 90s were really a time when Heisman's were looked at as a career achievement awards. And we even yeah. saw that into the early 2000s with, you know, like Adrian Peterson being shut out of a Heisman during his sophomore year because it's like, you'll win one down the road, kid. Right. And, um, you know, we've obviously seen a big change in that dynamic. But, yeah, just, like, those players for those early teams for me really stuck out as, you know, guys that were really formative influences in, in really coming to love college football. But, you know, it's not just about guys that play on teams we love. Who um Who are some of the players that really stick in your mind from – other schools that you just really well, you mentioned watching. Yeah, you mentioned one just a second ago. Adrian Peterson at Oklahoma is one of the best college football players I've ever seen. Like from the moment he stepped on campus, it just looked like he was a man playing against boys, right? Like he yeah. was. He would have been the first running back taken after his freshman season if he was allowed to go pro. I mean, he was unbefreaking leaveable at Oklahoma. I, he pretty much single-handedly led them to the national championship in 2004 when they lost to – they got beat pretty bad by USC in that uh, in that title game. But, man, Adrian Peterson was, was special, uh, and he's one of the ones that really stuck out to me right away watching him run uh, just roughshod over the entire country. Uh, regardless of who Oklahoma was playing, he was he was just unreal. Uh, probably should have won the Heisman Trophy uh, then as well if you yeah. really look back at it. Um, Sticking with running backs, I don't think I've ever seen a better college football player to this day, and it sucks that a lot of people like to ignore, or at least a lot of official people try to strike him from the record books. Uh, it's Reggie Bush. Oh, yeah. I mean, USC-era Reggie Bush was, the to this day, the best college football player I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, it was any time he touched the ball, it was lightning in the bottle. Like, you knew he had a chance at scoring, whether it was running the ball, whether it was catching the ball, whether it was returning a kick or a punt. It was just unreal. And I know a lot of people like to try to go back and say Vince Young should have won that Heisman Trophy in 2005 just because Texas beat USC in the national title game. No, he shouldn't have. No. Reggie Bush was far and away the best player in college football that season. I know Vince Young got the last laugh in Pasadena, but Reggie Bush was the Heisman Trophy winner. They can strike his name from the record uh, all they want. He's, the, I believe, the only Heisman Trophy winner who's ever had the award retroactively taken away. Um but either way, we all know, Zach, you and I know, everyone in the country knows who the Heisman Trophy winner was in 2005, and it was Reggie Bush. I saw those games. Yeah, I I, right. I, I saw that happen on the field. I saw what he did. It, you can't, you know, you don't have one of those men in black, like, memory sticks that can <laughs> completely wipe my brain of that. That happened, and whether or not you want to take a pencil eraser to it and try to scribble it out you're still going to see the faded pencil marks in there. He's still there. Yeah, you're not muralizing Reggie Bush from my memory. That That's guy will always was, stick yeah. in my formative 
formative experiences of college football uh, was Reggie Bush. And I think I remember his senior season, junior or senior season, whatever it was in 2005, um, against Fresno State. Like, not even, like, a Power 5 opponent or anything, but Fresno State, I believe he had <laughs> 600 yards all-purpose offense So when you count yeah. in his kick and punt returns. And, I mean, if they didn't have him in that game, Fresno State put up a fight in yeah. that game. Like, they had a shot at winning, but Reggie Bush was just – virtuoso in that performance uh there and I think that's the one that stands out the most to me when he you know made that on that return he makes that stop juke move that like he was the only player in the country who could do that stop and let a guy just run right past him and then pick up speed and still outrun everybody to the end zone what a special football player um I thought he would do better in the pros he ended up having a decent pro career but I thought Reggie Bush was like the second coming of Christ when I saw him play college football yeah, definitely. Um, he's definitely one that stuck out for me and was sitting there on my list. Um, looking at a couple of other running backs, like looking back, you know, um, Marshall Falk was always really fun to watch at San Diego State. That was one that, oh man, um, especially getting to see him on the West Coast uh, during that period. He was a really fun one to watch. And then uh, Ladanian Tomlinson at TCU was just absolutely absurdly good. Like he's another one that you kind of look back at that and how he didn't get as much Heisman buzz as he, you know, like I think he finished fourth in his final opportunity at it, but he, he could have very easily won it that I think 2001 campaign. Yeah. Um, I, I love he was the best player in college football that season. I don't think it's a disputable at this point. He's having to play for a non-automatic qualifier back then. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely be- well before TCU was uh, Big Twelve school. They were still in the the sort of uh, purgatory of cycling around a bunch of different conferences after the Southwest Conference exploded. Um, right. So yeah, and then um, another one from that era that. I, I think really just is indelibly etched there. Randy Moss. Getting, oh my God. Right. Getting to see him at Marshall. I mean, he, he, he was obviously a talented enough player. Florida state wanted him. Notre Dame wanted him. He, he didn't go to either school because of his legal issues, but seeing him at Marshall, like that 15 and O F one double a championship team when he, you know, their final season there and then seeing him continue to light things up when they went to the one a level the following season, he was like, I I still can't think of another receiver who was quite that good in college. Now, speaking of man amongst boys, my God, Randy Moss, uh, and Chad Pennington as his quarterback, too, with those Marshall teams. Those yeah. were a couple Marshall teams that were really, really good and probably could have competed at a high level at the 1A level back then, too. So I didn't see a ton of Randy Moss in college, admittedly. Uh, that was a little bit before. But he was absolutely my first favorite NFL player ever. I used to really like the Minnesota Vikings specifically because Randy Moss was on the team. And I just loved the way he carried himself. I love the fact that he was just better than everybody else on the football field, right? You'd, there was no scarier play than, in football than Randy Moss running a nine route and holding his yeah. hand up in the air because yeah. that means you're screwed. If you're a DB, exactly. You're as, absolutely as long toast. as the quarterback could get the ball there, you're done. 
Um, right. And and that's the thing. Like you mentioned him in the pros. It was one of those things where he like blew my mind when he was in college. And then, you know, following the draft that year, when he went to Minnesota, as somebody who grew up a Packers fan, I was just like, oh, <laughs> damn, damn, damn. Oh, why? <laughs> like, we talked about some of those guys who just stand out, like, why aren't you picking them yet? And that was one that was there in my mind. And as soon as I see the Vikings get him, I'm just like, no. <laughs> you know, it's going to be just tormenting for the next five to ten years. Exactly. <laughs> and it was. So, yeah, oh, yeah. So I believe he had a pretty memorable playoff game at Lambeau uh, one time. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't talk about that any, any <laughs> anymore. Um, things might have been broken. <laughs> <laughs> the only wide receiver that really even compares to that to me um, that was actually on my list was Calvin Johnson at Georgia Tech. Yeah, he he really stood out even just like. I don't know. There was just something about him that the the combination of size, the skill, oh, just the like smoothness of the way he moved on the field. Like, yeah, the pre-option Georgia Tech days when they yeah. were still running a normal offense. I think Reggie Ball was the quarterback there. Um, he was pretty solid, but he was aided by the fact that you had that six-five monster on the edge there that you could just literally throw the ball up to, uh, and he's going to go make the play. He's the only one that compares, and I don't think he's even what Randy Moss was in college. Um, and maybe if he would have had better support around him he yeah. could have been I don't know but obviously Calvin Johnson had a prolific career at another Packers rival I'm not I'm swear to God I'm not picking these guys just to torment torment you or anything it's not like the Lions ever won anything no. at least while he was there so uh but I know he certainly tormented uh Packers defensive backs at least twice a year oh yeah um, but yeah, what again, another really fun player to watch both in college and in the NFL um moving a little bit more recently as well like I'm definitely talking more about my teenage years especially looking at players but I'm going to move more into the the 21st century as well now and just kind of look at a couple of players since you know I moved to Oregon in 06 so I I, I definitely have to talk about a couple of Oregon guys who stuck out for me Dennis Dixon was one that just like when he got injured in in the oh god I can't even remember who they were playing I want to say Arizona but he got injured in that game and it completely crumbled their season that first year that, or that year that he got to to work under Chip Kelly the two of those guys working together was just ridiculous right um you know the synergy between coach and quarterback or coordinator and quarterback and doing exactly what each of each other expects to be done he could do no wrong like every when he was supposed to hold the ball and run he ran when he was supposed to to give up the ball he gave up the ball when he was supposed to draw back and pass with it he he did he was just so good at running that that read option system that mm-hmm. Kelly puts in that, um, you know, he was the one who really made it look like a video game. Like, he really mm-hmm. made it look like a video game on the field and, like, somebody playing in, like, amateur mode. It was ridiculous at times just how fluidly he could read everything around. 
Yeah, rarely has there been a better coach slash quarterback fit out of the gate than Chip Kelly, Dennis Dixon. Yeah. And then, um, you know, going back to our old tailgater days, um, one player that really stuck out, and I remember all of us talking about Matt included, was uh, Robert Griffin III. Like, we, oh were all yeah, we were all touting up, I mean, several years of his career. Like As a freshman, we were talking about I know. I remember that specifically. Yeah, like, we were lit up by him, and he only got better over time obviously. And, you know, like even going into the pros that first year was absolutely a, a phenom until he got injured. And it's right. re- really a shame to have thought of him getting, you know, I still think of that and it just kind of makes me sick to my stomach. But those days, those days in college were just so much fun to watch. And we had such a great time, like touting up that guy. He was one that I think was really the first time that I saw somebody that first time and was like, they're good. They're going to continue to be good. And and the fact that we got to watch it and just see it actually come to fruition over time, that's one that really sticks in my memory. God, I'm glad you brought him up because he absolutely is one of my favorite college football players of all time. I love the fact that we were so right when everybody else was ignoring him back then. Cause we, and when he was a freshman, broke on the scene as a, as a fresh, either a true freshman or redshirt freshman, whatever he was. And you saw the special talent. He had no help at yeah. Baylor during that no. era. I think, I think he led them to six and six or something like that. in his first year as a starter, which was just a massive accomplishment yeah. for Baylor at that stage. And then his Heisman year, getting them to 10 wins, which was just at that time, unthinkable. For a team like Baylor, who had been the laughing stock of the Big Twelve for years, oh, you yeah. know, and him being able to do that, him finding you know the perfect uh, receiving compliments and stuff on the outside there as well. I mean, that was a very fun Baylor team to watch. I don't know if I've ever seen a better throw in college football than the one he hit against Oklahoma, oh, where he was like off man. balance, threw off his back foot yep. in a dart to the corner of the end zone from like forty yards away. Uh, that I... Effectively won that game. Yeah. Yeah, that that definitely is a throw that still sticks in the mind for me as well. Like so crisp, just like no matter where he was throwing off of, like no matter where his like center of gravity was at that point, he could whip mm-hmm. the ball. That throw and Matt Leinert's throw, I don't even remember that in 2005 against oh, Notre yeah. Dame and South Bend, that one that just like hung in the air until mm-hmm. Dwayne Jarrett could find a little bit of separation to catch the ball. Those are the two yeah. best throws I think I've probably ever seen. They were amazing, both of those. Uh, I have one more receiver, and it was Michael Crabtree when he oh. played at Texas Tech. Uh, specifically, the big moment that sticks out to anybody's mind about Crabtree is when he caught that game-winning pass against Texas uh, in Lubbock. Yeah, catches it. Pro- everybody thought he was going to step out of bounds because Texas Tech can win the game with a field goal and the clock's going to run out. Uh-huh. And the guy grabs his jersey and Crabtree is like, eh, screw it, and just scores. Yeah. You know? Oh, that was and, so beautiful. I mean, what a moment. And that was an undefeated Texas Tech team at the time. They ended up getting beat pretty handily by Oklahoma uh, a little bit a couple weeks later. But what a moment in Lubbock uh, for that to happen. Uh, the fans stormed the field twice before the game was actually over. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, 
the clock technically ran out when Crabtree scored. They stormed the field. They reviewed it. There was still time left. They ended up doing it again, I think, after the extra point. They ended up having to kick off because they gave 15-yard penalties for the crowd. <laughs> the yep. refs did. So you're talking about, I think they were kicking off at like the 15. And my brother, as you know, is a Texas Tech grad. And this was during the time that he was attending Texas Tech. Oh, man. And we're texting back and forth during the game. And he's freaking out. Like, I'm like, man, what if your fans just cost you this game? Like, what if, what if Texas takes this kickback because of that? And he was, oh. that was a really cool moment. And Michael Crabtree was a great talent. Him and Graham Harrell were one of the better quarterback receiver combos in the country during that stage. Uh, no doubt about that. And one last player, obviously, that I have to mention, just as a player that that's always going to stick with me, is Marcus Mariota. Yeah. It, it was the total package. He's one of those players that, like, I, you know, if they still had the NCAA football game and if they put names in there, he's one where you just want to see high rankings all across the board. It's funny, you bring up the NCAA football game, and circling back to the Dennis Dixon year, that was 2007, is that right, the Dennis Dixon injury year? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. So speaking of 2007, one of the top duos that stuck out to me, you're talking about read option. How about uh, Pat White and Steve Slayton at mm. West Virginia? How deadly were those two together? Uh, kind of the birth of the read option, if you really look back into it, was right around 2007 with Dennis Dixon and Chip Kelly out in Oregon. And then at West Virginia um, with with Pat White and Steve Slayton running it perfectly. I don't know totally. if there's ever been a more devastating, um, speaking of the NCAA football games, uh, play on the like, NCAA 07, 08, whatever it was, than having playing as West Virginia with Pat White and Steve Slayton running the read option and just murdering folks. I did that. Like I used to destroy my brothers playing that, just running the read option over and over and over again with those two. Uh, another a West Virginia team that – was right in the thick of the national title race too until a late loss to I believe Pitt beat them at the end of the season and knocked them out of the national title race. I want to say they were ranked like second or something coming yeah. into that game. Uh, but what a fun duo those two were. Yeah, that was totally the year of number two in the rankings, just completely collapsing over and over and over again. I mean, South Florida was number two in the country for for a brief stretch there that season. <laughs> so was Rutgers. Yeah. So, um, what a weird year, Rutgers top five. Yeah, that's another story for another time, though. Um, I think we've hit on all the players that really stick out for me, just like at least the ones that are most memorable, the ones that immediately, if I had to spit names out, the ones that are there. Um, does anybody else kind of come to mind for you like that? I didn't want to leave off defensive players. I know we focused a lot on offensive guys. So yeah, I had a we couple did. of defensive players, too. Uh, obviously, uh, arguably one of the best defensive players in the history of football, Ed Reed, uh, whether it's in the pros or whether when he was playing at Miami, uh, watching him go to work was unbelievable. Uh, and I saw maybe the tail end of his career, maybe. I don't remember a ton about his Miami career. I remember seeing him and thinking, hey, that guy's really good. How is he able to run? literally everywhere. He's like everywhere at once. I don't understand how he's able to do that. Uh, and the other one that came to mind was Indomitian Sue. Uh, oh, when he was man. at Nebraska. So and, uh, good. specifically his 2009 season was, I don't know if I've ever seen a more dominant player. Like I think Reggie Bush's Reggie Bush was the best player overall I've ever seen, but in terms of sheer dominance and Dominican Sue was unblockable that he almost single-handedly carried a mediocre Nebraska team to the big 12 championship that year. They played Texas uh, in the 09 big 12 championship. I think he had like five sacks. Like yeah. he destroyed 
Colt McCoy uh, in that game and very nearly knocked them out of the national title uh, game in that in that performance. And I believe who was it, Zach, uh, that would have probably jumped up? Uh, it was a God, it was a BCS Buster at the time that was number three. I think that would have made it right. It might have been TCU that moved up if they did in 09, yeah. I believe TCU, I know in 2010 they were right there at it, so maybe I'm getting that confused. But I, there was another team I know, uh, maybe it was Cincinnati, there it is, because Cincinnati played Florida in the uh, in the Sugar Bowl that year. They were still, so, yeah, they, they, that was still when the Big East had their automatic qualifying sure. bid. So, okay. so, yeah, officially they weren't a BCS buster, but definitely the same yeah. type of feel of team. Sure. Um, right, it would have been very odd. Like a lot of people would have been shocked to see Cincinnati play for a national title. So yeah, that's what I was getting at. Yeah, because it was uh, that's neither here nor there. But and Dominican Sue, just watching him, uh, that was the year Mark Ingram won the Heisman Trophy, which was Alabama's first Heisman Trophy, which was awesome to see. But I even when we were talking about that back then, I said I would have cast my vote for Dominican Sue if for no other reason than that game against Texas. And he did, he put through a whole season's worth of that. But on the national stage, I believe. Either Texas hit a game-winning field goal or Nebraska missed a game-winning field goal right there at the end. But, I mean, he was just blitzing through, like, the center and the guard and then, like, grabbing Colt McCoy with one hand and, like, power slamming him down onto the ground. It was – yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen a more dominant performance in, in a game. And uh, I definitely wanted to mention him because I remember just being super blown away by his talent. Totally. Actually, it's funny that I, I, I thought I'd mentioned him earlier, but one defensive player that sticks out, especially from my childhood, um, funny enough, we mentioned him earlier in this podcast in a different in a different guys, uh, Pat Fitzgerald, back when he was a linebacker at Northwestern, you know, he won both the Nagurski and the Butkus awards. Uh, it was 95 and 96, I think, but that was when like Northwestern was finally becoming a respectable team again. Like those teams took them back to the Rose bowl and um, in the first time in Lord knows how long, but uh, Fitzgerald was really, there's a reason why he's stayed at Northwestern as long as he has as a coach. And it's the experiences he had during those seasons, really building up the Wildcats. And he's, you know, if he does nothing more with that school after that, he's still a Northwestern legend for those seasons oh, yeah. on, at linebacker. And then you add on the coaching career there and it just explodes beyond that. But he was like really the first defensive player. I just remember being like, wow. Cause you know, I like you think of some of those great guys from the eighties. I was too young to follow them. Um, so yeah, he was one that was just like, how is that guy doing that was part of it for me. Like he was the first one you were, where you were like, okay, like not exactly like the most like physically imposing guy in the world, but right. totally crushing it on defense. Like just what a phenomenal like sideline to sideline linebacker, just cleaning everything up really great and run support. Right. So, yeah, he's one that definitely stuck out for me as well. And thank you for yeah. bringing up defense because apparently I skipped over him on the list. So, <laughs> Absolutely. It's funny how Pat Fitzgerald's teams at Northwestern were taking that same kind of blue-collar identity and mentality that he had towards the game. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, on that note, I, um, I think we've pretty much covered everybody that I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, obviously, we could go on for another couple of hours and more players would pop to mind that just wowed us over the years. But, you know, I think these are the ones that really hit most for me, as I said earlier. So thanks again, John. It's always great getting to talk to you every week. Absolutely. Uh, always, always a pleasure, Zach. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks as well to all of you for tuning in. Um, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at JLMitchell93 and at ZBagalki. Uh, hit us up and we'll be glad to talk more football. That's what this is all about, folks. So thanks again for tuning in. We'll talk to you next Wednesday.